Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, I'm Charles Kirsch, and welcome to the fifth episode of my new podcast, Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I'm honored to be joined today by our guest, Josh Ellis. Josh is a renowned Broadway press agent who's represented such shows as 42nd Street, Rags, Into the Woods, Blythe Spirit, Loot, Big River, and The King and I, among others. He also helped create the infamous Broadway is Finally Holding Hands Again ad with David Merrick. He also served as director of press and marketing at the Roundabout Theater La Jolla Playhouse and has his own solo show, Call My Publicist, and is an ordained interfaith minister. Josh, thank you for being here. I am so delighted. Thank you for asking me, Charles. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you saw? I would say my family took me to see Gilbert and Sullivan Operetta. They played the beautiful Philadelphia Academy of Music. So I was about five years old, and I saw uh, HMS Pinafore, Trial by Jewelry, The Mikado, and Pirates of Penzance. And um, because my family knew Gilbert and Sullivan shows so well, uh, I, in fact, knew all the songs, the lyrics. I didn't understand necessarily what the lyrics meant, but I could definitely sing them phonetically. And uh, apparently, while watching at the Academy of Music, I was told by people sitting around us to please be quiet so they could actually hear the Doily Cart Company. That's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is early in your life, you liked performing and you liked singing and you did that at camp. And now I realize you did that on your own time too. So what was it that attracted you about being a performer? Wow. Uh, Frankly, I never thought of myself as a performer or if I did, I was very shy about it. So um, the opportunities like to do it in camp were like, wow, I I, I like doing this. Uh, I did carousel in summer, in in my summer camp. Uh, The most distinguishing feature about that production was that I played Mr. Snow and I had two Carrie Pipperiches, twin sisters, one who did act one and one who did act two. So um, whenever I watch carousel, I think of those two Carries as very different people. And if you've watched carousel, they are very different in Act One and Act Two, so it kind of matches. And uh, I, I like doing it, but I didn't really think I was very good at it. So uh, I tended to want to get into other aspects of the theater because I wanted to be part of the theater. I just didn't think I had it to be a performer. And goodness knows, the more I watched it from the audience's perspective, the more I realized I couldn't sustain eight performances a week. And that would be a killer for me. So what was it that made you decide among those fields to pick being a press agent? Uh, It was the only thing that I knew I was really, really good at. I was the uh, theater critic of my college newspaper. And... um, I had the opportunity after a very, very short career as a 
public school teacher, three days in fact, very short. Uh, I uh, be part of the graduate department at Villanova University. So I was in fact working with the people whose shows I was formally criticizing. This, and they gave me a, uh, an assistantship in publicity. And it was in fact really, really easy to do because our playwright in residence, the years I was in graduate school, was David Rabe. And David Rabe would write plays. We would do them at Villanova. Joseph Papp would come down to see the shows. Joe Papp would go, oh, that's terrific. Let me do this at the public theater. Some of the productions moved to Broadway. And we had so many connections with Joseph Papp and then separately with Cafe La Mama and Ellen Stewart that I, I, my campaign for the whole theater department was Villanova University, America's foremost tryout town. And it was a really great gimmick. I got lots and lots of publicity because in fact, I was working with something that was just top notch to begin with. How hard is it to get publicity for something where, well, we, we were having more hit shows at Villanova than they were having in downtown Philadelphia at the same time, and Philadelphia was like 23 miles away. So um, it was, we had great product, which is sort of the easiest thing for a press agent to work with. If you have a great show, your only job is not to mess it up. That was maybe your first, but certainly not your last experience with tryouts. In fact, with The Baker's Wife and Rags, you got to be out of town with some of the most fraught tryouts in theater history. Tell us what that's like. Uh, having grown up seeing tryouts in Philadelphia, it was very strange to, in fact, be working on a show where um, the problems that were happening on stage were echoed backstage. Um, the idea that David Merrick and Stephen Schwartz were really at each other's throats during The Baker's Wife was not pleasant. Um, Patty Lupone and Topol, who were the, the leads, disliked each other enormously. Um, there was a song famously called Meadowlark. Sometimes it was in the show, sometimes it was out of the show. Stephen Schwartz loved it, David Merrick hated it. It went back and forth. Um, and ultimately, Topol, I think he quit. I don't think he was fired. I think he quit, though someone may say to you, no, no, it was the opposite. But anyway, Topol was no longer in it, and Paul Servino took over, and Paul Servino had ideas about how he could fix it all, which he couldn't, and the actors' lines were getting changed every time, every day. As Patty Lupone said, her entire role was cut down to, yes, Amabla, no Amabla, yes, Amabla, no Amabla, and that was kind of about it. I guess miserably unhappy on one side, but really kind of wonderful for me. As I talk about it in my show called My Publicist, uh, there was one afternoon where the sh it was so obvious we were watching a flop, and we were watching it from the wings of the Opera House at Kennedy Center, and the audience was pretty empty and totally non-responsive, and the reviews had been horrible. And David Merrick looked over at me and was like this sort of 
nefarious laugh said, ooh, are we having fun? And I thought, having fun? I mean, this is like the biggest flop imaginable. But he loved the fact that we were having fun, even though it was a flop. And I think that's great, great advice for anybody who works in the theater. Is it fun? Forget, I mean, hit, hit and flop. We all have lots of hits. We have lots of flops. But do we have fun? And that's a really good measure of working on a show. So since you've done so many out-of-town tryouts and the practice has become more rare now, what do you think? Do you recommend doing an out-of-town tryout or do you think it's more trouble than it's worth? Well, I've had two kinds of experiences with out-of-town. I've had the out-of-town tryouts in the traditional way when you would go from city to city to city. And then I had a of doing shows that they didn't call out-of-town tryouts. They called regional theater productions that could turn into Broadway shows. So something like Thoroughly Modern Millie would be an example of that. And they're very different. And I think that the big difference is you have to make a lot of changes very quickly out of town. And there were people who were really great at doing that. Uh, famously, Jerome Robbins, um, sometimes George Abbott, George S. Kaufman would be called in to do some work on out of town. Michael Bennett was called in on certain shows, Neil Simon. They all did this and they did it like as a fraternity. They didn't ask for a billing. They would just watch and make suggestions. So they, people could make changes very quickly out of town. Big numbers would be like the King and I famously had lots and lots of problems out of town. But if you're surrounded by pros and Rogers and Hammerstein were clearly pros and Jerome Robbins was the choreographer, they worked on it and changed it a lot. And famously songs that you go, well, that must have been in from the very beginning were in fact crafted for the King and I out of town. The best example would be Getting to Know You, which was originally a different song done in South Pacific, but cut from South Pacific. So the fact that they knew to take it from South Pacific and put it into, into the King and I, that's the, that was their level of understanding how to do the process quickly. In regional theater with people having, well, they weren't Jerome Robbins or Rogers and Hammerstein, the changes happened more slowly and it didn't have the momentum that it did when they were really old fashioned out of town tryouts. So it's really who's doing it. Uh, if they're, there's a special breed of a person who can watch a show like Jerome Robbins famously did on a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and said the opening number's wrong. It needs a comedy number that tells the audience what they're going to see. And Stephen Sondheim was the genius who knew that the song that needed to be written was comedy tonight. So you need a genius like Jerome Robbins with a genius like Stephen Sondheim. They add a song, one song, and it changed the fate of the whole show. So th that's brilliance. And I, I, they just know, those people just had that talent. And when you're working on a show that's not working so well or parts of it are not working so well, who do you think tends to be the most clear-headed about it and who is too involved in it to see what's going wrong? 
Well, I will call, I say that every show has a daddy or a dictator. And, okay, it's whoever the daddy is and whoever, or whoever the dictator is. And it's the one who has the power to make the choices. So it isn't just, oh, I have an idea. Oh, I have an idea. It's about the fact that somebody can be the captain of the ship, the daddy of the household, and say, yes, we're going to do this, and no, we're not going to do that, and try. And if you're an out-of-town tryout, each performance is an opportunity to try something out. So you can see it. It's like you get an instant Nielsen rating. You can add it to the show, and if the audience likes it, you can tell. And if they don't like it, you can tell. But the pros say, listen to what the audience is, how the audience is responding. If they say, oh, it's not getting laughs, but we're in Boston, it's a real New York joke. New Yorkers will get it. That is the prime example of what won't work, okay? That is a terrible answer. If it doesn't work in Boston, by moving to New York, it won't, it won't instantly become funny. Maybe, maybe some New Yorkers will like it, but it's, it's not a good way to, to gauge audience response. I have to ask you another question about working on some flops. You've done a lot of hits, but you've also done some flops. What are some that you've been disappointed to find out are flops, and what are some that you think the premise is just so ridiculous there's no way it ever could have? I don't think I, I don't think a press agent is ever surprised because the first thing we do is read the script. Okay, so I have to remember that no matter how much I fall in love with the production, how did I feel when I first read the script? And then if it's a musical, and this date me, of course, uh, we were also given cassettes of the score. So you could listen to it and go, oh my gosh, this is... This is not going to work. Now, you, you can't fall in love with the shows that you're working on, or every time you watch it, it seems to get better, independently of what the people are doing to make it better. It just keeps looking better. And then you can fall into the trap of going, it's so good, when it's really not. It's really getting better, but they haven't made it good. The geniuses in the theater are able to make something mediocre into something good, and something good into something extraordinary. But... If you watch it as many times as the press agent watches the show before it opens, you're, you're rarely surprised on opening night. I, it's, it's like, oh, well, this is kind of what I was expecting. And um, it's like we've been around, you know, you get around too long and you're, you're, you have that instinct of, you know, this is not good. You know, people walk out. Uh, Stephen Sondheim said, if an audience walks out and talks about any other subject other than the show that they've just seen, it's not going to be a hit. And that has to also do with your friends. If you stand at the end of the aisle, mean end like near the rear of the theater, and your friends come by and they say anything on any subject whatsoever, that means they didn't like it. I mean, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, it doesn't matter. They can say anything innocuous. Like, I didn't know it rained during the show. That still means they didn't like it. If they like it, they can't control themselves with enthusiasm to tell you how much they loved it. So anything less than that, totally a total 
way to know. The other way is the ushers. The ushers of Broadway theaters have been around so long and so silently, but they absolutely have an instinct that you go, where do they, like, what is that instinct and why is it sometimes more uh, informed than producers and, and uh, playwrights and, you know, uh, I will give you the best example of ushers. The final critics performance of Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music was extraordinary by any measure. It was without question the best performance of the show and it was critics night and basically all the important critics were there on one night. And all the ushers stayed. Now, most of the ushers are allowed to leave after a certain amount of time. They have a few that stay in the theater the whole night. And they were all, they all stayed. And I asked the head usher, like, why are they here? And why are they staying the whole night? And she said, they know. And I thought, well, you know, talk to the ushers. <laughs> you know, they'll tell you. They're not shy, but no one really asks them. I'm going to go back for a second to the beginning of your career. I want to ask you about an unusual credit you have, which is as a replacement press agent on a show called Sherlock Holmes. How did you come to replace as a press agent? That's tricky. And on that one, I really don't remember. Um, because it was another office that handled the show. No. On Sherlock Holmes, no. I was hired by the show's press agent during the run of the show. So I was the replacement because the person who was doing it left and I replaced that person in the PR office. So that's very different than being the replacement if somebody else on the show was fired, where you come in later in the run and you're kind of like new in the family and you have to kind of establish a relationship with people who are very used to the other person. If the other, if your previous person wasn't well liked, it's heaven. If the person was beloved and you, fi and you follow them, it was a lot of, well, who is he and why is he here? So, and I've had experiences in both, both ways and it's, it's obviously easier if everyone disliked the press agent before me. And uh, for, for others, you know, bonds are formed on a long run. Relationships are established. And it's, the press, we're not interchangeable part. You know, when you come into a show or you lose a show, it's weird. And in the theater, it's really weird because it's so public. I mean, everyone knows you're fired from something or everyone knows you got something. I mean, it's big gossip. So one of my favorite things to hear about from press agents and to ask press agents is about various press stunts you've done. And I know that you've had your share of those. Uh, yes. There are certain press agents who like to do stunts. There are press agents who really dislike doing them. I worked for a big PR firm called Salters, Roskin, and Friedman. And Lee Salters loved stunts. So I worked with somebody who really loved stunts. Then I worked with David Merrick, who adored stunts. And I worked with Carol Channing, 
who loved being part of stunts. So it was not difficult for me not only to come up with a stunt, but to come up with a stunt that would have um, impact. And they have to have purpose. You know, so for, um, there was a production of Evil Legallion's Alice in Wonderland, and uh, Kate Burton, Richard Burton's daughter, and an actress in her own right, and a marvelous one, needed to bring on a baby pig. And my job was to, I, for a press stunt, was to uh, find a baby pig for the show. And by the grace of God, Bill Berlin, who had found and trained Andy for Annie, was able to get me a dozen piglets. Uh, they had to be like, like a couple of weeks old or, or, or Kate Burton couldn't have lifted it. So that was my most successful one. I, we did that, that pig audition and we got coverage not only from the local TV, but network. And it was like a little piece of news for like 45 seconds at the end of national news. Like you get Walter Cronkite and the whole program is like really depressing news, but they like to leave you with like a little, a little fun story. And um, so the pigs were like the last piece of news on all the, nat the network news programs too so that was that was just amazing it broke everywhere but you know having there were two things that made it really wonderful one is that they were tiny baby pigs that were very noisy and the second one was that the person who chose the pig was Eva Legallion who was a very famous actress director uh, she ran and founded the first uh, repertory, first woman to run a repertory theater in America. So she was a very distinguished actress at 83 years old. And the producer said, oh, she'll never go for a pig audition. And I thought, well, I'll ask her. And uh, she, I mean, she kept she, so, so much from a different era. I called her Miss Legallion and she called me Mr. Ellis. So I, I explained to her, yes, we'd like to do a pig audition. And she said, I think that's a fine idea, Mr. Ellis. I need a pig, and this seems to be as good a way as any to find one. So she was totally into it. And when she did the actual audition for the pigs, she was so serious. She treated it like a contest, like, you know, and they'd say to her, well, what are you looking for, Miss Legallion? And she'd say, I'm looking for an intelligent, attractive pig. And they said, well, well who will train it? And she said, I will. I mean, for the most part, they're smarter than actors. I mean, you can't get somebody to answer that. It's totally serious. She was the most non-humor. She had very little sense of humor. She said this in total seriousness. And she, she, when she picked the pig, and the little pig's name was Hamletta, as in like, Ham, get it? Uh, it was like, what more could you ask for? I mean, the, she just had an instinct for it that was just astonishing. So that's why it worked so well. She was, she took it like it was hard news. And it was amazing how well that worked. So you've gotten to work with many theatrical legends, including Eva Legallion, and also including Yul Brynner, who you got to work with when he was reprising his role as the king in a revival of The King and I. Tell us what he was like in rehearsal, and I know you have a great story about the recording session. 
Okay, well, the only reason I got to work on the show was because nobody in the office wanted to work with Yul Brynner. They had just worked with him on a show called Odyssey or Home Sweet Homer. It got changed. The name got changed to, on Broadway when it was Home Sweet Homer. And Yul Brynner's reputation for chewing up and spitting out press agents was legendary. So nobody in the office, which had handled Home Sweet Homer, wanted anything to do with him. And I love The King and I. It's my favorite musical, has always been my favorite musical. And I volunteered to do it. And it was just going to be a summer stock production. It was going to go to about, I think, eight theaters over the summer, many of them in the round. It was not a prestigious thing to work on, but I loved it. And Yul Brynner, I guess, could tell how much I love the show. It was just wish fulfillment. I could do photo session because I knew where everybody stood, even before the, you know, I just got the show. And he, I don't think he, he was famous for making demands on everyone, but I never found that demands made anything other than sense. He just, he could be very forceful and he did not suffer fools lightly. But like if he wanted for the Broadway production, which was the subsequent year, he wanted a rubber floor and it was expensive to put on a, a rubber floor on the stage. And his point was that the entire cast has to grovel to the king for three hours. And if they were on their knees for three hours, it was going to hurt their knees. And if it hurt their knees, they would have difficulty doing the show eight times a week. So it was the height of practicality to get a rubber floor. So on one side, you'd hear people go, oh, there's endless demands. But if you were in the cast and you were like the Royal Siamese children, it was lovely that they got to kneel on rubber. So it's, it went both ways. So um, I'm not sure what story you want to talk about for the recording of the album, but I'll tell one. But if it's not that one, you can say, or do you want to give me a hint about what, which one you want me to tell? Oh, the one about the different takes of is a puzzle. Oh, okay. Pu okay. Um, the astonishing part of the recording of The King and I, uh, the 1977 production with Hugh Brenner and Constance Towers, well, it was done on Val uh, Halloween 1977. And in the room were Richard Rogers and Hugh Brenner. And it turned out to be the last recording that, you, that Richard Rogers attended of his own musical. And Yul Brynner did Puzzlement three times. And the third time was as brilliant as could possibly be. And you, Richard Rogers was beside himself. He said, that's it. It's perfect. And Yul Brynner said, no, I have another one in me. And they were kind of, yeah, it's Yul Brynner, so they'll let him do it a fourth time. And the fourth time was earth-shatteringly great. It was unlike any other time I had ever heard him do it. It was like watching a master surgeon just pulling apart each of those lyrics. And by the end of the song, you know, there's like there's this, when they do a recording session, you finish the number, there's a pause, they wait for the tape to end, and then they go, cut. And as soon as the, the, uh, it was the, they said cut, um, everyone started to cheer and carry on, and the, the orchestra was 
banging their, their instruments. And Richard Rogers came over and said, oh, if only Oscar Hammerstein could have been here today to hear this. And you go, wow, that is just a real privilege. And it also shows you that a star and a legend can give 100% every night, but when the certain things happen, they, give, they do 110. And can you tell 110 from 100? Absolutely. You do not need to be a genius. You're in the room and you go, oh, the air has changed. So, okay. The other story, it's very sweet and very short, was the fact is that the kids in the cast had to uh, miss their Halloween celebration because they were recording all day and evening. And you Brenner felt very sorry for them. And the following year on Halloween, he threw a cast party for them. Uh, and he, he and Connie dressed up. And he is like the dad show. And, the dad. and it was such a special thing for them because they had the cast album, which of course is the permanent record of something. And they had the experience of a, of a really great Halloween party. And, I, you know, the, ca the cast and company were invited. So I was definitely there, as was my associate, David Lachey, who took pictures. So it was pretty great. I'm sure everyone will want to know who they dressed as. Can you uh, Brenner dressed as a clown and Connie Towers dressed as Raggedy Ann. So going with this theme that we've been talking about, who are some other stars that you've worked with who've defied their reputations either in a positive or a negative way? Um, well, most of the time you hear uh, press agents talk among one another. So it's not exactly like you're surprised to find out that somebody is particularly vexing uh, for the most part. It also is like, if, do they have a vexing person behind them who does all the dirty work? So you have to watch out for two things, not only the star, but also a lot of times the husband manager who the star stays nice but that person does all the evil for them. Um, I would say the biggest surprise was Glenda Jackson, who seemed foreboding and tough. And she always plays like mean, she largely played very larger than life mean characters. And I had worked with her, I think, right after working with Vanessa Redgrave, which was an unpleasant experience. And I thought, oh my God, I, I mean, like two of them in a row, I, I don't know how I'll stand it. But uh, Glenda Jackson was just wonderful. And I've worked with her twice. And she is the, an actress who can be unbelievably intense on stage. But by the time she gets to her dressing room, she's Glenda Jackson again. And I love the fact that she was able to go from whatever intensity she had on stage to her dressing room. And she was like totally warm and nice and easy and smart. Uh, so that, that was a total surprise because she just didn't resemble the characters on stage. Um, Rex Harrison was as difficult as everyone predicted he would be. Um, Lauren Bacall. She's a big tester. She was like, she would put you through the ringer with demands and questions and uh, just 
She was so difficult, but I, I figured out a way to, she had to be confronted professionally and you had to stand your ground. And she respected standing your ground if you could back up. And um, I did, you know, I basically said, uh, I want this photographer to shoot the show. And if the pictures are not to your liking, uh, I will pay for another photo shoot. And she said, you know, your ass is on the line. I said, yeah, I, I get it, you know, but I have great confidence in this photographer and I think you will like the pictures. So we take the photo shoot. Okay, we're in Denver. And she sees Martha Swope, an extraordinary photographer. And she said, what's Martha Swope doing here? I thought, we've been through all this in New York. You approved Martha Swope coming. Remember you said, my ass is on the line. Well, I guess there's nothing we can do here in Denver at 10 o'clock at night. I said, let's just do the photo shoot. So we do the photo shoot. And I make it clear to Martha, I don't give a shit about anybody else in the cast. I just want Lauren Bacall to look great. That's all I care about. She has to look great and thin, okay? That's my goal. And we, I asked the director, uh, I'll remember his name in a second. He's, he's, he did uh, uh, Noises Off and... Uh, City of Angels, and okay, I'm just drawing a blank on his name, but anyway. So I said, do you mind if I restage some of your scenes so that they'll look better in photos? He said, I don't care one way or the other. So I moved things around, and uh, I, we take the pictures, and I say to Martha, retouch these pictures like you've never re retouched a picture in your life, okay? I want, I mean, I remove every line, wrinkle, anything. And I also want you, if possible, to make her waist thinner and her hips narrower. I want those pictures to be, even if I only have 10, I just want to have 10 that are perfect. And so I go back to New York, Martha does the work on the pictures, and then I schlep back to Denver with my package of 10 pictures, where she looks breathtaking. So I show, I show Lauren Bacall the pictures, and this is what she says to each one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she goes through them and I go, well, does that mean you approve them? Is that yeah mean you want to see them again? I, what's yeah mean? She goes, they'll do. I said, that's fine. Okay. I'm glad to hear that you've approved the pictures. I'm back at the hotel in Denver and she calls me and she goes, you know that picture of me at the, at the bottom of the bed? I said, yeah. She said, I want it to be my new autograph picture. Uh, I'd like 300 copies of it. And I go, are you trying to say that you like that picture? Yes, goddammit, I like the picture. Are you happy now? I said, I'm very happy. And she hung up. And I figured after that, she was easy to deal with. Like I had proven to her that my goal was to make her look fabulous, which why wouldn't I? I'm the press agent of the show. What do you think? I'm, I'm going to actually look for pictures that make her look lousy? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But she just didn't trust me to be good at my word. So I had to prove it to her. So that was Lauren Bacall. <laughs>
which was the show our listeners will want to know that you worked with her on? I'm sorry? Oh, which was the show that you worked with her on? Lauren Bacall? Yes. Actually, three. Um, uh, this was um, Sweet Bird of Youth, this production. Uh, before that was, I'm not sure of the chronological order, um, the summer tour of Wonderful Town, where she played Ruth Sherwood. And uh, our office, not me personally, but then I became personally involved in it, was uh, Woman of the Year, but not the show itself. We represented Lauren Bacall in Woman of the Year because she was not she, well, she categorically refused to speak to the show's two press agents. So um, we were there as sort of liaisons to Miss Bacall. Now let's talk about your longest run, not in years, but in hours, which is Nicholas Nickleby. And yeah. there are two things about that that must have made it very hard to sell. One was the sheer length. Two was the fact that you were charging more than almost any show had before. So how did you get around both of those things? Well, first of all, I'm going to say it was definitely a group effort. I can't say that I did anything, though I, I certainly didn't mess up what was a really good thing going. But uh, let's remember that it was a huge success for the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. So it came here with the f its worth and, you know, like already there, it had won awards and so forth. The problem was people in New York said, nine hours, I'll never be able to sit for nine hours. Just not possible. And even though there was a 50-minute dinner break, that was no consolation. And the other part was that the ticket was $100, which was enormous at the time. The top price to see a musical was $17.50. So $100 to see parts one and two was high, and you couldn't buy part one and see how you liked it and then buy part two. You had to make a commitment to do both. And I would say the combination between Liz McCann, one of the producers, uh, and the most active one in terms of PR and marketing, the idea of these tickets, and Nancy Coyne, who came up, you were going to spend more money than you ever thought you'd pay for for a theater ticket. And it was a very pretentious radio commercial. It even said things like book your tickets now, not buy your tickets now. It was very kind of like you are either going to buy tickets for this or you're going to be out in the rain. There were lots of problems early on. The New York Times sent a reporter the first day the box office opened and there were 21 people in line. And she'd also covered the opening the first day the tickets were available for Amadeus. And she said, well, Amadeus had over 100 and Nicholas Nickleby only had 21. So everyone in the New York Times reading the New York Times knew this was not, this was not a show you had to buy in advance. There's not that much interest in it. But then the ace in the hole was something that came about through a whole bunch of people. And I'd say I did all the legwork for it, but to take personal credit, I'll share the credit for it, which was the cover of Time Magazine. And it was, I've never seen 
the impact of a Time Magazine cover for the theater. First of all, it's like one of the, it's like the only straight play that was on the cover of Time Magazine in the second half of the 20th century or anything in the 21st century. So it was rare that a straight play was on the cover of Time and the circulation was 25 million. And I would say instantly, it became the hottest thing in town. I, the lines were ridiculously long at the box office. Um, and then the first preview was like, oh my God, everyone's there in kind of tempting fate. You know, you look around and go, well, will I last all nine hours? Will the other people last nine hours? And the cast of Nicholas Nickleby greeted the audience when they came in. And on greeting the, the patrons, they were given a muffin and without any explanation of why they were being given a muffin. Well, you're going to something for the Royal Shakespeare Company. By this very name, it sounds like it's going to be a serious sort of thing. And you're being given a muffin. And about 10 minutes into the show, um, you're introduced to the villain of the piece, Ralph Nickleby. And the cast encourages the audience to throw the muffins at Ralph Nickleby. And as soon as those muffins hit the stage, you knew that audience was with the show 100%. There was a relaxation level that you absolutely felt like, oh, we're in on this. And from that moment to the very end of the show, they stayed with it. It was amazing. Uh, I would say at its height, uh, more famous people came. The final performance had more famous people in standing room. I would say there were like a hundred famous people in standing room. I mean, in, uh, including, I remember Brizhnikov and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were in standing room at the, at the final performance. Lena Horne, whose show was produced by Jimmy Niederlander, and he was also, Jimmy was one of the co-producers of Nicholas Nickleby, wanted to go to see the show, but she could only see the evening part because she had a matinee that day. So Jimmy got her a ticket in the mezzanine. So it was like, to say, I, yes, we hear stories about people trying to get into Hamilton or any other show. I have never said, people were willing to give me in their firstborn. You know, that they just, you had to like, you either saw Nicholas Nickleby or you didn't see Nicholas Nickleby. And anyone who saw it pretty much uniformly said it was one of the greatest theatrical experiences of their lives, which it was. And I was not the director and the co-directors, uh, Trevor Nunn and John Caird, who came up with the idea of the muffins. But we all took advantage of the fact that there were muffins. So you, you use every little bit we did things like what to wear when you see Nicholas Nickleby. What underwear do you wear? What kind of socks do you wear when you see it? How do you eat in, and get back to the theater in, in 50 minutes? We had Nicholas Nickleby dinners all over in close vicinity to the Plymouth Theater. And there were a million angles to the show. Uh, so it, it was, it became a phenomenon literally overnight from that's, it, Time Magazine comes out on a Monday morning, or it came out then on a Monday morning. And I would say by the end of the day on Monday, it was like what was being talked about.
So now let's talk about your longest running years on Broadway, which was 42nd Street. Tell us about the recording session, of the rehearsal room, and were you involved at all in the opening night stunt telling everyone that Gower Champion had died just after the curtain? This is kind of a long story, so I'll try to make it as brief as possible. David Merrick asked me to be the press agent of 42nd Street. I had just opened four other shows with other Broadway producers, and I thought it was the height of folly to do a David Merrick musical trying out of town at the same time I had just had four other shows open. And so I turned David Merrick down. And I had worked with David Merrick a number of times before, so it wasn't like he just called me out of the blue. He had given me the script before, he had given me the uh, cassette, so I, I, I knew what I was turning down, and it wasn't that I thought I was turning down a flop. I mean, I knew it was going to be a hit, but I thought, oh, working with David Merrick simultaneously with working for, I mean, between, between Liz McCann and Barry Manilow, believe me, I did not need Merrick as my third M. So um, uh, I recommended a friend of mine, Fred Nathan, and David Merrick hired Fred. And uh, Fred was the press agent when the show opened on Broadway. Um, I, David Merrick invited me to see a pre, not even a preview, it was one of those performances that was canceled. So it was just David Merrick and about five other people in the audience to watch the show. It was the performance where the cast was so annoyed doing the show to an empty house that they all were, they all decided among themselves to bring uh, stuffed animals and dolls to the performance. So every seat in the theater at the Winter Garden was filled with either um, a stuffed animal or a doll, except for the ones that like David Merrick sat in, I sat in, the stage man, you know, whatever. I mean, there were, there were about five of us in the audience. And that's the performance of 42nd Street that I saw. So I was not at opening night. And shortly thereafter, uh, David Merrick and Fred Nathan had a parting of the ways, shall we say. And I got a call at 7.30 in the morning at home. And the voice said, how would you like to be the press agent of the biggest hit on Broadway? Now, I recognize David Merrick's voice. But I have to say that I have a number of friends who impersonate David Merrick. So I wasn't even sure that it was David Merrick. So I had to first kind of work through, is this really David Merrick or is this somebody pulling my leg? And it took very little time for me to realize, yes, this is definitely David Merrick. I, I could tell by his humor and lack of humor simultaneously. And um, he said, you know, basically, I want you to do it, and I want you to do it now. And um, the other shows had opened. They had already done their tryout. They had already opened. And so I became um, the new press agent of 42nd Street. And David Merrick said, the first thing we're going to do is make I do not want we're going to do some, a lot of stuff for Gower Champion for 10 days. But after that 10-day period, I don't want Gower Champion's name mentioned again. So my job was very specific, specifically to get publicity, but nothing that referenced Gower Champion because Merrick was tired as all the press talked about, not unlike when Jonathan Larson died before Rent opened. I mean, it was like the topic. Even when press agent, even when the press called me about other shows, they were still saying, so like what's happening with, you know, with 42nd Street? And 
I had to kind of de-Gower champion it. So that was uh, a, a, an interesting task. <laughs> so, so my next question is about a place that you call your favorite place in the world, which is Star's Dressing Rooms. Tell us about some memorable experiences you've had in Star's Dressing Rooms. Okay, Star's Dressing Rooms. Uh, some stars get to the theater really early. Lena Horne got to the theater at five o'clock for an eight o'clock show. There was just so much that she could do over that three hour period. And it was like clockwork. This is what she did at five. This is what she did at five. This is what she did. You know. So I knew an ideal time to come. And being in the stars dressing room with Lena Horne, was just fabulous because if she was doing other things like putting on her makeup or having her hair done, um, she would just talk. So it would be great to hear about MGM and Ava Gardner and working at the Cotton Club and all those things that you could hear about in a star's dressing room when there's no pressure. After a performance, it becomes like the hottest place in town. Yes, lots of celebrities came to see Lena Horne but most of the time we just chatted and talked on the stage because the dressing room was too small for, for partying. However, David Bowie had a smaller dressing room backstage at the Booth Theater when he did The Elephant Man, and that never stopped everybody from coming there. So you would go to that dressing room and legends were there. I mean, you know, it's... It was David Bowie. I mean, he knew everyone. And the room would just get more and more and more crowded with people. And the doorman was very sweet. He knew it was the best party in town. And he, he, the doorman at the booth just stayed really, really late. Even if he got overtime, it was like he wasn't going to tell David Bowie's friends to leave. Not when all of them were like really legendary. And it was, in fact, the most fun party in town. So it was great to be in that one. You Brenner used to make dinner for me, well, for us, and in his dressing room. And he had a walk in his dressing room, a big dressing room, I hasten to add. And he would make food on the walk. And he would sit, start the, the walk during a small house of Uncle Thomas. So by the end of the show, the walk was ready to cook. So, I mean, and that was kind of timed. And I mean, yes, I wanted to know everything about the movies that he did. I wanted to know everything about his famous love affairs. And I, I, I you know, he would talk about like someone like Judy Garland or Marlena Dietrich. And I would just be there like open mouth. But he also talked about you know, philosophy. He did go to the Sorbonne. So he he had a, a wide range of knowledge other than showbiz. And he was equally enticing when he was talking about other things other than his lady loves or whatever you whatever euphemism you would like to use. But uh, those dressing rooms were just Sandy Duncan's dressing room at Peter Pan. I mean, it was fun central. I, Sandy is a sublime star, and she just, it was just the most fun place in town. She just, everybody in the cast adored her, and the, that's where the fun took place. But right. it's, 
it's just the most fun place to be. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I love doing famous people who came backstage and whether they were like people famous from politics or sports or writers or whatever, you know, it's, you go, these are legends who were coming here and I'm in, okay, like I'll give you a, a great, okay, a great one, okay? Cher came to see The Elephant Man, but not with David Bowie. She came to see it when it was still the original cast. And I asked her if she'd like to go backstage after the show and be photographed. And she said, absolutely. And during the intermission, she said, I cannot go backstage because I'm crying so much. Just look at me. I don't even look like Cher. Can, we, can I come back tomorrow night and can we do pictures after the show tomorrow night? And I thought, isn't that a lovely and gracious way of getting out of it? She said, can you give me your card? I said, sure. So I gave her my card thinking, well, that's the last time I'll see her or that card. And about two o'clock in the afternoon, the following day, my assistant said, it is Cheryl on the line calling you. And she said, are we still on for tonight? I said, you're actually going to come? She said, I told you last night I was going to come and, and I'll look like Cher tonight, okay? I promise, you won't, I, you, I will not look like I did last night. I said, sure. And I arranged for her to have her car brought into Schubert Alley, which is adjacent to the stage door of the Booth Theater. And her car came in and she came and she got out of the car and it was like, oh my God, she does not look like the person who was here the night before. She looked a lot like Cher. And the cast was just hilarious because they couldn't believe that anyone would do that. You know, the idea that you would be the kind of star that would actually put on makeup to be photographed with a cast backstage. Who does that? And, but yeah, who does it? Cher. And she did it fabulously. And I remember Carol Shelley, who won a Tony Award for The Elephant Man, said, oh, I want to be a star just like that when I grow up. You know, so it's like, it was all fun in that dressing room. That's a great story. Before we move on to your post-Broadway career, I want to make sure we talk about one more legendary show that you worked what? on, which was Into the Woods. Tell us how you got involved with that and take us behind the scenes. Okay, I, I pitched the show. I was not, I, by this point in my career, most of the time I was asked to do shows by producers with whom I had worked previously. But I, I really actively worked to get into the woods. And on my own dime, I flew out to San Diego and saw it at the Old Globe. And what impressed me the most about the show was that the kids, and I went to a Saturday matinee, the kids in the audience loved it. They were just having the time of their lives. And that was a really great lesson because I knew that if kids loved it, that would be the bridge that would make us a smash hit because they didn't come to see a Stephen Sondheim musical. They went to see a show that had an interesting plot or in that, in that show's case, interesting plots. I mean, there were a lot of them and they were not put off by like one of the stepsisters having her toe cut off, things like that. They thought it was funny. Parents may have gone, oh, I don't want my child to see that, but the kids ate it up. So I met with the Dodgers uh, who were producing the show 
And I said, I want to do the show because I can't do anything about it artistically, but I think I can make it into a commercial hit. And I was aware that a lot of Stephen Sondheim musicals got great reviews, but were not commercially successful. I thought, what I can bring to this is commercial success and making it fun. And when you work, there's certain shows that like have a built-in audience. So Into the Woods comes to New York. There's some casting changes, including adding Bernadette Peters. But, um, and it was Michael uh, David's idea to put the boot on the top of the Martin Beck Theater marquee, a giant, a giant's boot huge giant's boot. And so when you came into the theater, it looked like it was going to be fun. And it was pretty great to find out that it in fact could be a big commercial success, even more successful than I ever imagined at the time. Because people would say to us, well, what age group is it appropriate for? So remember, let's, let's put yourself back in the mind of the year in which it opened, not now that it's famous and had a movie and all that. You know, and we thought it was kind of like for mature kids, plus obviously adults. But we had our doubts about the, the kid audience and how mature. And it, time has only proven that, I mean, there's now Into the Woods Junior, as you well know. And so it's clearly playing to an enormous audience that I frankly didn't even expect at that time, but it was great to see because you announce a new Stephen Sondheim musical or a Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine musical. There are a number of sophisticated New Yorkers who will come to see the show, come hell or high water for like the first preview maybe a lot of the previews. They, they, you know, they come around the opening shortly. I mean, they're like in the know, but that does not make a hit. That only makes the show run the, the have to find the larger audience and to make a commercial that took advantage of the title song, but rewritten by Stephen Sondheim that it would fit into a one minute format or a 30 second format these are people that go, yes, this is how we sell it. And I was grateful that we sold into the woods. That was the, for me, that was the part that gave me the greatest gratification because I couldn't make the show better. I mean, it was already wonderful and it kept getting more and more wonderful as the, as the, as, the, as, as, as Stephen and, and James worked on it. So uh, it was the joy was not just that it was wonderful, but that it was a wonderful hit. So your last show on Broadway was The Price in the early 90s. What was it that made you decide to leave? <sighs> well, to go back to David Merrick's line, are we having fun? And I would say there were a whole lot of factors, not the least of which was AIDS, which was devastating the theater community. I lost too many theater friends. Um, I lost my uh, partner. I uh, it was just a time to, I just needed to get out of town. I, I needed to be away from things. And moving to San Diego felt like an escape. 
I mean, I now know as, as we get older that you really can't escape anything, but that's largely why I didn't want to do it anymore. And I had been spoiled by some of the greatest producers around. Woody Gottlieb, David Merrick, Liz McCann, Nell Nugent, the Dodgers. I had really some first-rate producers, but I was also starting to work with a whole lot of people who were not. And they were really difficult because they were asking me for stuff that I couldn't deliver, and they were making outrageous demands. And they were being nasty about making those demands. And I wasn't good at it. And I thought, this is just not fun. So I just decided, you know, I've had the best. I've had a wonderful time. Don't wait for it to get worse. Just leave and figure it out from there. And it was time, there was a time to go to San Diego and there was a time to return to New York City. But I did not want to return to being a theatrical press agent. That's, it's like, I've done it. Time to move on to other things. Well, New York's loss was San Diego's gain because you quickly went to work again as a press agent at the La Jolla Playhouse. And among the many shows you worked on there was Thoroughly Modern Millie. And tell us about discovering Sutton Foster for that show. Okay. Um, Sutton Foster, you know, was not the original Millie. It was Erin Dilly. And Erin uh, Dilly got ill during the uh, rehearsal period. And so let me just place it, okay. La Jolla, Playhouse is, La Jolla Playhouse is on the campus of UCSD, in uh, University of California, San Diego. And it was rehearsing in what would, might be called, a, you know, there's rooms in colleges where they do uh, like a big lecture hall. And they were doing the first run through of the show, start to finish, no stops unless something dreadful happened, but you know, no costumes, no scenery, just doing it start to finish so we can kind of hear what it sounds like. How do the pieces all fit together? And since Erin wasn't able to do it, Sutton did it because she was Erin's understudy. And I hasten to add a personal friend of, <laughs> I mean, they were both friends. So, um, uh, I know that, I remember that Sutton had memorized the lyrics, but not the script yet. So she carried the script when she did the book scenes, but she pretty much had the choreography down and she had the music and lyrics down. And it was stupendous. She was so great that you absolutely knew a star is born. I never felt it so palpably in my life where it was like a, a movie from the 30s where, you know, like the understudy goes on. It was so, it was like fiction, but we were clearly seeing it. And I remember saying to uh, Dick Scanlon, who wrote the, the book and the lyrics, and I said, I just don't know what to say to you. Muscle tough or oi? Because it was like... You found your Millie, but you obviously we're going to have to deal with Erin Dilly. And there was no question who had to be the star of the show. None. Um, and 
because we were seeing it so close up, and, it, and, it, and it, the stage virtually took up the whole lecture hall, and there were like a row of seats. So that wasn't like we were watching it in an auditorium. More was like, the, it was like literally being done right in front of us. But we knew she didn't perform, Sutton did not perform like she was in a lecture hall. She performed like she was on Broadway opening night. And she just shot that performance right out to the second balcony in a room that had no balconies at all, of course. And you go, that's it. It's the real thing. So uh, not only did we get to see her go into the show, but when she got in and they, um, they wrote a song for her. And in the, in, the, in the script, it said, big song from Millie. That's all it said. It didn't say what it was going to be about. It was just that in, in, in uh, you know, what do you call these things? Not, not quotation marks. What do you, you know? Uh, parentheses. What? Parentheses. Per, not parentheses. The ones that are like straighter. Anyway, uh, it said song, big song for Millie goes here. And they wrote a song called Gimme Gimme. Now, at the Playhouse, to use the bathrooms, we had to go from the trailers where the offices were into the main building and use the bathrooms in the main theater. And uh, Janine Tesori and Dick Scanlon were in the lobby with a piano and we would hear them writing the song. So it was like a 30s movie where, hey, it's the last minute, let's write a new song for the star. And they always did it like in a hotel room. It was always like, oh yeah, what are the, you know, are they writing a new song? Yeah, they're up in the hotel room writing a new song. Except there, it was like in the lobby. So every time we would go to the bathroom, we would hear them doing it. And then uh, Sutton had a recording machine and she would walk around the campus of UCSD learning the song. So we would like hear her. So eventually we actually saw the song being written and Sutton learning the song and then putting it in rehearsal with just the piano and eventually seeing it in the final production with full orchestrations and so forth. So it was like the process of doing a show was so visible to us. And that's a rare experience because you usually don't see all those phases happening in front of you. They're invariably things that people talk about you know, they stayed up all night kind of thing, working on that. I mean, that's, we hear that about almost every famous song, but this was different. It happened in broad daylight. Do you personally feel the song was a good addition to the show? Yes, and you know, how do you know? Because it stopped the show the first time the audience saw it. There was no question that she, it was written for her. In the old ways that People would write, Cole Porter or Julie Stein would write a song for Ethel Merman. They wrote it, they knew her range, they knew her good notes, they knew what words that she was really good saying. You know, like, how do you know what, what good words Merman? Like the word wonderful, okay? They say that falling in love is wonderful. It's an Ethel Merman word. You have to like, it's too, it's written, to exactly to her needs, you know, and that's how they wrote Gimme Gimme. It's, it's, it was what well, kind of a gift to both 
they wrote it as a gift to Sutton and Sutton delivered it as a gift back to them. So it, it worked both ways. And, you know, I mean, I said instant Nielsen rating, you know, that night, it, hey, if it, if it didn't stop the show, you go, hmm, why not? And then smart people learn how to make it better. You know, I, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair was not a hit originally because people didn't understand that she was actually washing her hair. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't bubbly enough and it didn't, they didn't see the bar of soap. So they had to figure out a certain number of performances and you go, that song is so good. How come Mary Martin's not like delivering the goods? And they realized they had to give her a huge bar of soap huge like not like a regular little bar and they had to give her shampoo that made lots of bubbles which mary martin later described as being prell you just needed a little bit of prell in your hand and it made lots of bubbles so it wasn't the bar of soap that was making the bubbles it was the prell underneath it and that's how you make a hit but you have to be smart enough to know that what you need are a big bar of soap and prell that's <laughs> And that's how the geniuses knew how to do it. When you returned to New York from San Diego, you made a big career switch, which is that you're now an interfaith minister. So interspiritual, interspiritual, actually. Spiritual. Interspiritual minister, yeah. And something that's taking up a lot of your time now, you're also a disaster chaplain. So what was it that made you decide to make such a big switch? Uh, it happened during 9-11. I was watching it on television and just sobbing and hearing a little voice that I call my inner loving voice that sometimes gives me messages, well, actually frequently gives me messages. And the message it said was, go back to New York for its healing. And I had absolutely no idea what that meant. It didn't make any sense at all to me, but it was such a strong message and I've learned over time to really believe what it's saying. Um, it took me about two years to extricate myself from San Diego and my relationships there and moved back to New York. And within a week, I had found an inter, interfaith at the time. It's been changed now to interspiritual seminary. Um, and it just resonated for me. And I remember being at their introductory class where they asked for like your name, your phone number, your address. And I didn't have an address. I was staying with friends. I, I had my cell phone. That was about it. So I, uh, and my internet address. So, you know, it was like, it just felt right. And over the years, the seminary was two years and then I did three years of, uh, uh, graduate work as it were on, spirit, on it, care, spiritual care. And it just felt like a really good match. Um, largely because for somebody who's incredibly verbal, um, I do very little talking as an inner spiritual minister. Um, in fact, like people say, well, how do you know it's working? And I'll say, because the reaction to what I'm saying has so little to do with me. It's like something's happening and they're hearing what they need to hear. 
And isn't that amazing? Because there have been times where someone has said, thank you for your kind words, and they've been so helpful, and I haven't said anything. So they heard something, whether or not it came out of my mouth, I, it didn't. But if they heard what they needed to hear, my, I'm just grateful. I don't ask why, I don't ask how. I'm just really glad that if that, in the midst of a disaster or some other event in one's life, if they hear what they needed to hear, but it didn't come out of my mouth, so what? What comes out of my mouth is ego. What comes out of the spiritual care is, I don't know, I hate, I'm not fond of the word divine, but probably, I mean, it's like, it's just meant to be. So it's an entirely, like what we're doing now is the opposite of me as a disaster chaplain. That's a really beautiful story about how you've sort of found the want to do that. So now tell us about developing your solo show and working with Gretchen Cryer. Okay. Uh, the show is called Call My Publicist, The Starry Education of a Broadway Press Agent. And it started out, I wrote, started writing it as a book. But then I realized that I was having infinitely more fun telling the stories. And I like telling the stories because I like impersonating the stars with whom I worked. So I was having more fun telling it verbally and making it just work with itself. And the two parts were hard. Okay, there's really kind of three parts, okay? You do a one-person show or a solo performance piece. First, you have to write it. Then you have to perform it. And then you have to sell it. And it's like you become a writer, a producer, and a performer all at the same time or over a period of time. But all three of them are part and parcel of doing it. And I needed to find out if the stories that I told were worth telling. And that took a long time because I thought, you know, am I doing this for me? Am I doing it for the audience? So it took a certain amount of time. And frankly, I needed to be told by others who had no vested interest in it. Like, is it working? Is it okay? I mean, is it too long? Is it too short? Is it, you know, like total full of insecurities. So, I worked through a script, and then the second hard part was learning to perform it, because it is, in fact, scripted. It's not me coming up and telling a couple of stories. It, it, it has a beginning, a middle, and end. I go into some very dark stuff, um, and I wanted it to be the whole experience. And I've specifically written it so that at the end, it's kind of a downer, and then something happens, and then all of a sudden, the audience is totally with me, and there's a huge laugh. And it's written that way. I want it to be like, yes, we do come out of it the other end, but a lot of it is not unlike what we're going through now with COVID. You know, it's, there's a dark period, and where do we find the light in that darkness? And that what it's about you know that we can find humor we can find a way out though I obviously didn't write it that way at the time but it's, there's definitely a parallel to to what's going on I will say 
to all the listeners, when things go back to normal, don't miss a chance to see this show being performed because it's really a great solo show and just a show by itself. I'm glad that you think of it as a show because that's what I attempted to do. If it was, it's not a lecture, it's not a PowerPoint presentation. It's, I hopefully it's a show. It has a plot, it has a, an arc. And that's what I worked at. If I say something in the first five minutes, somewhere along the line, there's going to be a payoff, you know, and it's not, you know, my career was wish fulfillment. So it's not hard for me to go from a little boy who loved the King and I to working on the King and I, but working on the King and I also covered working with your Brenner up to his death. So it's its its own story from a little boy of six to an adult dealing with the death of a friend. So it's, it covers a lot of turf. One thing I know I don't have to ask you is what have you been doing to keep busy during quarantine? As I know that being a disaster chaplain has kept you ultra busy, but what have you been doing in terms of theater related things? Um, First of all, I would like to thank God or whatever you want to call it for Broadway cast albums. We'll start with that, okay? They have, they have been my pals like forever. So listening to them is just it brings back memories. It brings, okay. Um, YouTube, again, what a gift. Okay, we can just like if we miss the show or whatever, we can watch it on YouTube. Um, Zoom, what a gift. Okay, uh, a group of friends who adore musicals are, meet once a week, as you well know. And I have to say that each meeting feels like we're there together. I, I have lost all Zoomness about it. To me, it's like nine friends getting together to talk about what we most love. And it's, it's like, the, the strangest part is only when it's over that like everybody leaves the room and I look around and oh, I'm here by myself because it doesn't feel like myself when I'm watching it and participating in it. So there's so many and so many plays and musicals and and conversations and there's there's so much out there i truly don't have time to watch everything and people are always saying well didn't you watch it and it's on netflix didn't you watch it it's on amazon prime didn't you and you're going I, I, i'm running out of time here you know i, I can't I, I, like i don't stay up 24 24 7 but the stuff is accessible 24 seven. So I'm tempted to like go, okay, I'm really, really tired, but ooh, there's this, this, this video, I didn't even know it existed. And like zip, I'm back, I'm like, I'm, it's like quicksand. I can't watch two minutes of it. I go, oh, I'll just, I'll watch five minutes. No 10, okay, because it it allows us to access something one one or two ways. Either it's a performance that I loved that isn't it unbelievable that it's on video, you know, or 
you know, you can, so I can re remember like Tessie O'Shea's big number in The Girl Who Came to Supper because the London medley because it was on the Ed Sullivan show or Gwen Verdon doing If They Could See Me Now. Um, so that, or performers who frankly died before I could go to the theater and see them. And you go, oh, that's what Sophie Tucker was like. That was what so-and-so was like. And you go, well, that's as close as I'm going to get to it. Because, I mean, I, I've heard people talk about Gertrude Lawrence for years, and you can't get it from listening to a record. She was not a good singer, and she didn't come. There's nothing video-ish about her. And she was also in um, the Glass Menagerie motion picture, but she's not very good in it. So I've never gotten Gertrude Lawrence. But then you watch her doing a little bit of The King and I on the Ed Sullivan Show, and you go, oh, okay. She had star quality. I get it now, or I'm getting it. So it's, it's, there's so much out there. And isn't it wonderful that we can share it and then talk to friends and go, I loved it. You have to watch it too. You know, though I have to say, I don't like being asked like, did you watch it? Did you watch it? And you're going, okay. I can't keep, you know, I can only watch so many things. And I'm not, you know, that's what it is. But to, to say what fills, and I, I, I'm, I'm loving the fact that I can talk to friends who were sometimes hard to reach, like get to see one another or talk to one another because of where they live. And now, I mean, with Zoom and, um, and FaceTime, it's like, it doesn't matter where they live. They can, we can talk to anybody at any time. So it can, what a great opportunity. I now we don't, other than I have one friend who categorically refuses to get a computer, but that's a whole nother story. And he's like in a separate universe and he's like a lost cause when it comes to how can you exist without a computer? And I don't know. I mean, I've, I've gone there. I can't, I can't make him change. I mean, that's how he is. But for the rest of us, pretty darn great. You're right. We're really lucky to be able to have so many resources to keep in touch with each other and theater during the well, remember, as I remember as a child, the greatest punishments would they say, now just go up to your room. And I think COVID's sort of like that. I go up to my room, though it's a one-bedroom apartment, but it does have an internet and high-def television. And, you know, so it's like I'm, I'm, I'm fully equipped here. It's not like being left alone, like being in a prison and being given like one book. It's, there's, there's so much out there that it doesn't even seem like out there anymore. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. You worked with so many great people and you have so many great stories that it's really amazing. Listeners, and thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on Friday when we are joined by Evan Pappas. Evan starred on Broadway in My Favorite Year, Parade, Putting It Together, and A Chorus Line. His national tour credits have included Dreamgirls, Durante, and On Golden Pond with Tom Bosley and Michael Learned. Off-Broadway, he starred in I Can Get It For You Wholesale and the world premiere of the new Strauss and Adams musical, Marty. Now he is a noted director whose credits include Liberty, A Letter to Harvey Milk, and more. Currently, he is the artistic director of the Argyle Theatre. 
Thanks for tuning in.